good afternoon uh, everyone hello uh, welcome all the participants uh, to this important event uh, this is the fifth edition of indic academy's extremely well received retrospective prospective webinar series uh, today indic academy brings to this event an intellectual giant of our times uh, whose career achievements spanning last three decades are astonishing and surely inspiring to all young aspiring thinkers and academicians who are here with us today. Conrad Elst's intellectual contribution to the Ayodhya debate in the 1990s, and of course, thus um, to the rise of Hindu political power is uh, very well known. Uh, Elst was in India at uh, the Banaras Hindu University uh, for postdoctoral research in Indian uh, philosophy um, in Buddhist studies in the year 1991 when the Ayodhya movement was at its peak. Uh, Elst's uh, introduction to books by Sita Ram Goyal and uh, Ram Swarup, uh, pub, you know, published by Voice of India, and the publication of his first book, Ramajanmabhumi versus Babri Masjid, a case study in Hindu-Muslim conflict by Voice of India in 1990 has changed his life forever. He would, I'm surely, you know, agree with that. Mm. And... Uh, Harikirinji will explore that aspect a little bit in the first session today. Uh, Conrad Elst has uh, since then written over 30 books and uh, contributed to a lot of uh, uh, books, a lot of other books uh, in articles, uh, in chapters, and also hundreds of uh, you know, publications in academic journals and articles in you know, various uh, uh, magazines and newspapers. He's delivered probably thousands of lectures. I'll just read out a list of some of his well-known books, only just a few of his well-known books. Um, of course, I just mentioned this book of Ayodhya, which was published in uh, uh, 2000, sorry, uh, 1990. Um, of course, his Negationism in India, Concealing the Record of Islam, uh, which was published in 1991, uh, is one of his very well-known books which actually uh, went into a third edition, uh, which, you know, in 2014. Uh, his next book, uh, well-known book, uh, The Demographic Siege, uh, you know, it was in 1998. The Update on Aryan Invasion Debate, published by Aditya Prakashan in 1999. The Saffron Swastika, The Notion of Hindu Fascism in 2001. It's a two-volume edition. Um, there was another uh, book, which again, you know, he published in 2006, uh, by Voice of India, the Return of Swastika. Uh, this basically continues the, uh, you know, adds more material uh, to the first book which he published in 2001. This book is quite well known. You know, L.K. Advani is supposed to be uh, supposed to have carried this book with him all the time. You know, uh, heavily marked and you know, uh, uh, and even you know, displayed this book in probably the parliament as well. Uh, a lot of stories about uh, his love for this book. Decolonizing the Hindu Mind, Ideological Development of Hindu Revivalism, published by Rupa in uh, 2001. This is based on um, Conrad Elst's uh, doctoral research. Uh, this book also topped the Asian Age nonfiction top 10 in May 2001. Gandhi and Godse, a review and a critique. This was published by Voice of India in 2002. Uh, this was a detailed discussion of Godse's defense speech during the Gandhi murder trial. So, of course, there are a lot of uh, uh, wrong narratives that was uh, woven around what this book is about. He's not defending uh, the murder and assassination of Gandhi, but he was only discussing uh, 
uh, God says defense. Uh, there's also an American edition planned uh, with uh, Edwin Mellon Publications, New York. Um, then we have who is a Hindu? Hindu revivalist views on Buddhism, Sikhism, and other offshoots of Hinduism, published by Voice of India in 2002. Ayodhya, the case against the temple, published by Voice of India in 2002. Ayodhya, the finale, science versus secularism in the excavations debate, 2003, by Voice of India. India's only communalist, a commemoration volume on uh, the late historian uh, Sitaram Goyal, uh, published in 2005. The Argumentative Hindu, Essays by a Non-Affiliated Orientalist, published in 2012. Then a very important book, Still No Sign of the Aryan Invasion, uh, uh, recently published in 2018. It's a collection of papers from 2007 to 2017 on the Indo-European yeah. homeland yeah. Uh, debate and the ancient Indian history. And uh, his most important uh, recent book is India's Culture Wars, uh, published by uh, Rupa in um, 2019. There are about uh, three or four upcoming books that uh, Conrad Elst mentioned, uh, which I wanted to mention here. Uh, these are in preparation at this time. Uh, so he has a, an upcoming book on the Buddha, a Hindu, uh, being published by Shubhi Publications in this year. Uh, similarly, The Way of Heaven, Philosophy of Rasachakra by the same publisher, and again this year, upcoming. And then uh, the one which I'm really, really looking forward to is the book uh, Idolatry by Munshira Manoharlal in uh, 2021. And of course, he has uh, hundreds of publications in the Dutch language as well, which I'm not going to uh, read um, you know, or list out here today. Though Conrad Elst doesn't call himself a Hindu, his uh, role in the Hindu revival movement cannot be overstated. His uh, criticism of uh, anti-Hindu narrative not only gave ammunition to Hindus to fight these uh, forces, but Elst also held a mirror to Hindu intellectuals and organizations in critiquing them with uh, objectivity and frankness. In fact, uh, blunt and brutal honesty is an almack you know, of his writings. And of course, along with his uh, gentle wit and humor, you know, he's very well, which he is very well known for. Many may not know, uh, he's actually contributed an article called uh, Humor in Hinduism uh, to an edited, edited uh, volume uh, by the title Humor in Religion. <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, humor, humor is very important uh, uh, for uh, Conrad Elst. Uh, people meeting him would find him very approachable, lovable gentleman, you know, who shows great love and respect to his friends and fellow travelers of the Hindu uh, revival movement. I'll end this uh, brief introduction with a few, few you know, biographical uh, details uh, before we begin the first uh, session today. Um, so just a brief uh, bi biographical sketch. Conrad Elst was born in uh, Leuven, Belgium on August 7th, 1959. Um, his father, Dr. Jean René Elst, I hope I pronounced it right, uh, okay, a civil servant and a scholar in social law. And his mother, Clara Elst de Beer, uh, a teacher turned uh, housewife. So he has a, a strong academic uh, 
you know, a household, <laughs> you know, a teacher, mother, and a scholar uh, father. He did his schooling in Leuven and uh, was interested in philosophy from his school days. He, in fact, wrote papers on Friedrich Nietzsche at a very young age. Uh, he started out to be an engineer like most of us, but then he dropped out of college only to start his career in Indology and Oriental Studies later in uh, 1985. Uh, a little bit about his educational qualifications, you know, which are astounding to say the least. He has a, a BA in uh, Chinese studies in 1987, MA in Chinese studies in 1989. His thesis was on the concept of key, uh, life breath. He has a BA in Indo-Iranian studies in 1989, MA in 1990 uh, for his thesis on Ayodhya. He also has a BA in philosophy from 1987 and MA in philosophy in 1991. His thesis was on the non-retributive understanding of the concept of karma. He has also done one-year postgraduate uh, research in Indian philosophy at Banaras Hindu University from 1990 to 1991. Uh, in fact, he was uh, accepted for PhD in Buddhist studies, but uh, he was forced to return home. So he could not complete his PhD at that time. He got his PhD in uh, eventually, I think, in... Uh, 1998, I think, uh, in Asian studies, uh, with his dissertation on the ideological development of political Hindu movement, decolonizing the Hindu mind, and an additional thesis on the non-existence of Sanskrit references for substantiating the Aryan invasion hypothesis. He also has uh, formally studied the languages uh, Avestan, Sumerian, and Hittite from 2015 to 2017. Conradel um, speaks uh, Dutch, which is his mother tongue fluently, along with uh, French, German, and English languages. He has working knowledge of Hindi and Chinese. He can understand Arabic and Persian, and is also familiar with Latin, Sanskrit, Vanyan, which is, I think, the Chinese classical language, and Greek. Um, he is currently the chairman. Uh, you know, effectively, that means he's the general editor of a book series uh, that is to be published of the Ramsvarup Sita Ram Goyal Memorial Fund uh, 2019. He recently conducted the, uh, the centenary uh, celebration of Ramsvarup in October 2020, and he will be celebrating Sita Ram Goyal centenary in October 2021. Um, with this uh, brief introduction, I now move towards uh, start of the next uh, uh, session for today. Uh, before uh, that, let me introduce uh, today's uh, interlocutors, you know, who will interview uh, Conrad Elst uh, in the next uh, four sessions. Uh, the first session is uh, Sri Harikiran uh, Vadlamani, uh, who will talk to Conrad Elstji on his journey as a scholar so far. We have uh, Dr. Ramakrishnan Sita Raman, uh, who will speak to Conrad Elst about his work on ancient India. And we have Sri Ashutosh uh, Singh Thakur, who will speak to Elstji on his work and views on various issues from recent history of India and its civilizational encounters. And finally, the last session uh, would be by Sri Pankaj Saxena, who would uh, speak to Elstji about the Hindu revival uh, movement and uh, its future. After that, there would be a Q&A session. I request everybody to use the Q&A module at the bottom of your screen to type in the questions. I would uh, collect these and collect these questions and I'll ask all these questions at the end of today's uh, event. 
Um, I will introduce each of these speakers at the start of their sessions. Right. I now uh, request all the speakers except Harikaranji and Conrad Elsji to uh, switch off all the, uh, their videos and mute their microphones. I request Harikaran Garu and uh, Conrad Elsji to keep their video and microphones on. Okay. So, welcome uh, to the first session of the retrospective prospective webinar series from Indic Academy. Today, we are honored to have Sri Harikiran Vadlamani speak to Conrad Elst about his life journey so far as a scholar and beyond. Harikiran Vadlamani Garu is the founder of Indic Academy. He is an investor, activist, seeker, and an aspiring artist. He is an inspiration to hundreds of aspiring activists in the Hindu revival movement, and he is a benefactor to thousands of scholars, students, and enthusiasts who are pursuing their interests and contributing to this Indic Renaissance. With this, I request Harikiran Garu to uh, please uh, start his session today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Srinivas. <laughs> that was a, a very generous uh, introduction to me. Uh, Sri Guru Pyonama. You know, there is this uh, movie uh, called Shashank, uh, Shashank Redemption. Uh, and uh, if you go to the IMDb uh, ratings, it's rated number one, number two of best movies of all the time. And um, when it was actually released, uh, it was a, it didn't do commercially well but it is recognized as one of the classics. Now, my friend uh, K.E. Uh, is like the Sashank uh, Redemption in the sense that all his life, he's, he's, um, you know, he's not a tenured uh, professor anywhere. He's not, uh, he's, not, he's not eating pretzels with pretzel. You know, he's not, he's not doing that. <laughs> and uh, his uh, stories of uh, persistence, tenacity, uh, survival, um, there's so many things that, uh, uh, you know, when we, when we just understand the kind of hardships that he has faced uh, in his life, uh, you, you know, you feel ashamed. Actually, uh, you feel despondent, you feel ashamed. There's, there's so many emotions that go through you. Uh, when you see such a fine scholar has, uh, has not been treated well by the circumstances and the environment. At Indic Academy, we have taken a decision. Um, when we started this retrospective prospective series, that we will target scholars who are 60 plus and ask them that, look, you have another 20 years of active life and you're celebrating your 80th, the thousand moon, uh, seeing of the thousand moons and you're looking back at your life. And what is there? How do you want to look back? And we want you to, we want you to ensure, 
we want to ensure that you look back without any regrets without any sense of regrets and tell us what is the legacy that you want to leave in terms of leg digital legacy in terms of a print legacy and in terms of a human legacy in terms of sishyas that you want to mentor so that your uniqueness is continued as a guru sishya parampara mm -hmm. so we have done four such uh, webinars now we have done with balagangadhara we have done with vishwadluri we have done with michel danino and today gives me great pleasure i have known ke for the last 6 years now we been interacting he's a very difficult man to like and love his <laughs> uh, we had our share of uh, differences i myself remember that i was on a long flight and we were having this argument in on the mail group and i wrote a, a lengthy mail to him and uh, something happened that mail got lost i mean there was no battery and i didn't charge the my computer whatever happened i could never send him that uh, mail but he is a person that most of us uh, love to hate hate to love he is a very difficult man but we are sort of uh, we have sort of settled down ke and myself we have sort of settled down uh, into a nice comfortable relationship wherein uh i can call him ke he, he you know on a first name basis and 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 there's a nice um uh, you know uh, equation that uh, i have established with him so i want to promise in front of these 95 people that you know we will celebrate ke's 80th birthday in varanasi okay he's just finished his 60th birthday so we can't do uh, shasti purti but we will you we will we will do the 80th birthday when he sees a thousand moons and we'll celebrate 80th birthday in varanasi because that's where you know he did his uh, phd he came to know about uh, voice of dharma sitaram golram swarup and all that his his journey started in kashi so his 80th birthday let's all take a sankalpam that we will celebrate in varanasi so on that note this discussion for the next few minutes next 20 25 minutes uh is only going to uh know about k more uh it's just to know about him his personality what uh, you know all those issues so i just sent him a, a list of questions that i'm going to ask him so i'm going to just start off uh by asking him what is what was his relationship with rss and what is his current relationship with rss and um, why does he think rss is an anti intellectual organization um, because i thought that you need an intellect to be anti something so you know that's a paradox in a way so yeah. i just want a quick uh, view about you and rss ke before we move on to the other questions mm -hmm. yes um well first of all uh, welcome to you and to the audience also to all the newcomers uh aap se milkar mujhe bhi prasannata hai um okay so to um to break the um conversation with uh, a difficult subjects all at once the rss um when i had freshly discovered the ayodhya affair uh a few days before i went to the uh, voice of india office for the first time i went to the um rss places on jahan jahan de wala 
Uh, and so I scouted around their bookstore and I was a bit disappointed. You see, in the West, we knew all about Islamic fundamentalism already. And given that Hinduism is a lot more colorful than Islam, I had expected these, you know, notorious Hindu fundamentalists to be far more interesting. And um, what I saw there was, you know, the somewhat uh, predictable uh, copies that you find in many third world countries of, um, of Western nationalism. I mean, this whole language about national unity and national pride and so on, that sounded all too familiar. And so there was little of the specifically Hindu import in that. And so already I wasn't too sure about this RSS. Then um, when I talked to Sitaram Gowell for the very first time, already then he um, confirmed uh, my misgivings about the RSS. And so, uh, you know, he was not too impressed with them saying that already in his student days, and he noticed that the people who were drawn to the RSS were typically the most mediocre people, people who sought a collective identity for lack of much personal input. And so maybe that's the profile of RSS people. They're nothing against that category of people. And in fact, typically they tend to be very dedicated and so that's certainly a quality. And um, they're good followers. You see, the problem is that when they rise through the ranks, and of course, not all RSS people do that, you know, many go out in society and try to, uh, to realize their ideals in the real world. But those who stay on to make career within the RSS they remain followers even by the time they reach the top. And so they um, tend to follow that which is dominant at the moment, which in India is secularism. And so they tend to drink in quite a bit of uh, secularist influence. And over the years that has gotten worse and worse. So when I hear Mohan Bhagwat say, all Indians are Hindus, you know, I think we've gotten very far from the original inspiration of the RSS. I mean, whatever else you can say about the RSS, at least it followed the perfectly normal, pretty universal idea that there is a difference between Hindu and Indian. A Hindu is specifically a pagan Indian. And Muslim Indians, Christian Indians, you know, whatever the origin of their religion, they themselves are Indians. And so if you say all, um, all Indians are Hindus, it means that Asaduddin Owaisi, for example, is a Hindu. Now, have you asked him, does he agree with that? You know, I, I have my doubts about that categorization. And so very many people uh, 
of RSS views, like all those on, on Twitter and so on, they, uh, they defend this, they stand by this. Now, I mean, if you think a little bit, you just know that <laughs> this is not good enough. And indeed, you see, for, for Guru Golwalkar, for example, whatever else you know, can be criticized about him, at least for him, it was totally clear that Hindu and Indian are not the same thing. Like, for instance, he, uh, he wrote famously or notoriously that as far as he was concerned, uh, Muslims and Christians can stay in India, can be perfectly well treated and enjoy all the rights, except citizens' rights. You see, they will be protected, they can make career and everything, but they should not be full citizens, not even with voting rights. They should be guests in the country, they are not the real nationals. Now, you see, that I think is a very questionable position, but at any rate, it presupposes the normal conceptual distinction between Hindu and Indian. So the RSS is, um, I won't say degenerate, but it cer certainly it has um, evolved towards this uh, present position. Why? Because generation after generation, its leadership has been under the influence of secularism and has absorbed more and more uh, secularist attitudes. So I think that basically is the problem with the RSS. So you have very many good people to start with and they do many useful things and they boast of their services during natural catastrophes and so on. So that's all there. You know, RSS people are very good people. I've stayed with RSS people uh, in India as well as in the US. And, you know, I have nothing but good to say about them. Nevertheless, the policies of the RSS are unfortunate. Have you met Mohanji? I have seen him speak, but I haven't personally talked with him. Yes. What are some of the turning points in your life, uh, Kei? Turning points? Um, well, as uh, has already been said in the introduction, the uh, discovery of the Ayodhya affair um, and the discovery then of the situation with political Hinduism, that of course is a strong turning point, not just because intellectually it, it focused my interest on something that I hadn't been aware of before, uh, but also because it changed my social situation. In uh, 1990, there was a um, World Ramayana conference, which happened to be exactly in my own home university in Leuven. And so there I spoke about the Ayodhya affair. And I showed that, of course, there was a temple there. Now, by a number of the professors present, I was puked out. You know, they were livid that, you know, such an August conference could uh, permit such a rabble rouser like me to even speak there. So, you see, from then on, in the, uh, in the logical world, I was persona non grata. And um, this meant, for example, unable to get a job within the academic circles. 
and you know that that would be even true among um, well you know vice chancellors or whoever has the power to decide who would be sympathetic to me because you know I've been disinvited in very many places even just for a one-time lecture uh, by people who agreed with me, but who said, yeah, you know, you're right, but we can't afford to be seen with someone like you. You know, so so that changed my life uh, in a very practical sense. But, you know, it's, let's see the good side of it. Uh, it certainly focused my attention on a really interesting issue in the sense that on the one hand, it is uh, intellectually challenging, but with the promise of ending up on the right side, uh, it's a good issue. At the same time, it's a difficult issue. There's socially a lot to achieve. There are not only the enemies, there are also on the Hindu side, quite a few people who cause me problems. <laughs> Tell me, uh, remember our conversation, uh, we, we were going to have uh, dinner uh, some point in time in Harvard with our friend there. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you think that, uh, that uh, AIT will ever be disproved uh, in, in terms of, uh, will, will there be an acceptance by them uh, saying that, yeah, we made a mistake? Or do you think that it's just going to sort of they won't stop, they'll stop talking about it. How, how do you see that playing out? What's well, that defining moment? What's, what's that, that inflection point and in saying, yes, now this is this theory is hogwash. Uh, is, that, is that going to happen? Well, in um, the history of scientific revolutions, uh, usually people don't just turn around and say, oh, I was wrong. You know, let's go with the new theory. No, you see, people just die out. You know, in the time of Galilee, if I may permit myself that, that comparison, um, few people are known to have suddenly turned around and said, oh yes, you see, Galilei is right. But they died out and a new generation came up that had learned to see the things through the lenses of the new heliocentric theory. And to them, it was just obvious. And so this may well happen. Um, then again, you should, of course, not underestimate the scientific honesty of many people. So I do see some people turning around. And in fact, uh, those who are now in the out of India camp, most of them have a history of believing in the Aryan invasion theory. I myself in my young days have written an article explaining the Aryan invasion theory, which at that time I didn't question at all. I thought it had been proven. Tell so me like recently there, recently there were some um, two Russian scholars who only since a few years have started working for the Art of India theory. And so, so it happens. And so even at his, uh, at his old age, even Michael Witzel might turn around. I uh, don't exclude that. <laughs> what have you personally gained from uh, the Hindu scriptures and uh, uh, 
uh, your study of Hinduism. What, what has been your personal transformation because of that? Oh, well, I mean, of course, yoga, you know, the, the practice of yoga, that wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been the Hindu scriptures, though usually um, a lot of that comes through several filters. First of all, you get translations, then you got people summarizing the same insights in, you know, modern books. And then people read those books and they use them in their teaching of yoga. So uh, it's not really at the source. So later on, of course, when I learned Sanskrit, I, um, I did go to the source. Now, it's, it's, it's a surprising question. I mean, surprising to me. Uh, what should I say? I mean, the Rig Veda, of course, I really, I am really impressed with. Uh, it's a very high quality of poetry. In fact, I could name some Sanskrit scholars in the West who are very anti-Hindu, who nevertheless admit that this is very high quality poetry. Um, I, uh, well, you know, this is my, uh, my want, my uh, nature to also say something adversarial. I do not share the common Hindu uh, love and admiration of the Bhagavad Gita. You know, with that, I have a few quarrels. <laughs> Though in general, I mean, it does summarize much of the yogic philosophy. And with that, I have no quarrel. But you see, the person-centeredness around Krishna that I do not like. Though um, the Hare Krishna movement, quite present in the West, was my first, one of my first uh, uh, contacts with Hinduism. They're very good at vegetarian cuisine. And um, to name something very Hindu, they have a castle in uh, the, um, the Ardenza Hilly area in Belgium. And um, so they bought up a castle. They have a big uh, Hare Krishna center there. And there in the meadows, they have Indian cows. And so one of my, uh, <laughs> one of my revelation moments was not so much really a scripture, was looking into the eyes of those cows. Wow. You know, I mean, cows in general are nice, but these Indian cows really have something. You know, they have such deep eyes, you know, you can get lost in them. So I think personally that one of the greatest compliments you can make to a lady is you look like a cow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us something about your daily routine. Yeah, my daily routine is not good enough. Um, it should be far more regular. Um, but, you know, like many writers, I, you know, live, you know, whenever I get inspiration, I start working and it can be till like four in the morning and then going to sleep, which is when the gods rise and um, take their shower and so on. Um, so, yeah, that, that could be better. But then in other respects, um, at home, I've been a vegetarian for many years. But outside, I didn't care. And so I've taken the occasion of the corona uh, pandemic 
to set that in order. So now I'm a complete full vegetarian. Um, also limiting my use of milk that perhaps maybe a bit more uh, giving into current Western fashions than Indians would do. Um, yeah, what else? Some intellectuals uh, that uh, Indian intellectuals that uh, you admire in the current crop as well as in the previous Dharampal's uh, mm -hmm. time or in the current crop, any intellectuals that you admire? Yes. Um, well, first about your former question, I have to, of course, say obligatory. I would say that, yes, of course, I have my daily routine of uh, meditation and certain physical exercises and pranayama. But, you know, I suppose everybody thought that already. Now, um, people in India I admire. Well, um, I recently, because of the conference, reread Ram Swarup. And so he was a very simple man. And um, even in his writings, you know, he's very to the point, not full of uh, academic references or so but very serious. And so I was impressed here and there with um, pioneering things he did that I wasn't sufficiently aware of. Like for instance, there is this uh, use of yoga psychology in analyzing the revelatory uh, basis of Christianity and Islam, which is quite good. You see, it's one thing to say, oh, um, uh, Mohammed and um, some of the biblical prophets simply had a mental problem and so they heard voices and that became the basis of religion. Um, so that's that's what skeptics in the West nowadays say, whereas his approach is far more subtle. It takes into account the fact that, you know, human beings have all kinds of states of consciousness. And so in yoga, you purify these and you systemize, systematize these and you understand them. Whereas many people just fall prey to these altered states of consciousness, take them too seriously, too absolutely. And so they genuinely believe what, you know, normal people would take a distance from after it happens to them. Um, so that's Ramsaru. Uh, one person I really liked as a modern Hindu is uh, Daya Krishna, who was a philosopher. He was also a friend of Sitaram Gwal and Ram Saru, um, because he is on the one hand very respectful of Vedic tradition, yet on the other hand, he also um, employs modern insights like uh, the idea, for instance, that the Vedas are revealed, you know, since creation of uh, superhuman origin, he uh, argues against that quite convincingly. And so to, um, to combine these two, you see, not to be too superstitious and yet not to be too um, negative, materialistic and so on. I think that's the right uh, line to follow. All right. What uh, you 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 were mentioning that you're working on a book on uh, on Buddhism, and we had a chat about this, and we even announced a a short term 
uh, research fellowship for uh, Western Buddhism. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 what's the status of your book as well as what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, conflating all the good things about uh, Hinduism to Buddha or, you know, now we say Ayurveda is also from Buddha. Uh, you know, you, you know the problem, so I don't need to talk. Yeah. But, but just in terms of this global movement towards Buddhism and conflating and digesting all the things about Hinduism into Buddhism, uh, what what are your thoughts and, you know, what can be done? Yeah, well, the state of my book is simply at the moment, I'm just collecting material. I'm not at the editing stage at all, uh, but it's coming, promise. I mean, in my life, very often, you see, I take an initiative and then it takes years for me to seriously take it up and, and finish it. Like I have many unread books over here that I know I'm one day going to read. And so that's also for writing books. Um, but that book is coming. Now, about Western Buddhism, uh, there are a few uh, changes in perspective. Um, although they are they are interpreted by the people themselves as uh, in fact being true to the real Buddhism. You see, they say that the Buddhism which you see, uh, like for instance in Thailand, I went to a Thai temple. This was not in Thailand itself, but in Los Angeles. But nevertheless, you see, I saw Thai people coming there and surprise, surprise, making a sacrifice of a white chicken at the feet of the Murti of the Buddha. You see, that's rather far from how we imagine Buddhism to be. And in fact, it is historically correct that the Buddha himself objected to animal sacrifice. So that's, that's like religious Buddhism. That's turning the Buddha into a god. Now that in the West is uh, objected to. They say this is an aberration. This is, well, a concession to popular religiosity. Okay, but, you know, I just interrupt you for a minute here. And I'm yeah. just curious. Is there, you, you, you say 100 years ago, uh, uh, yeah. was, there, was there a thing called Buddhism anywhere without an adjective, a non-adjective standalone Buddhism was there that somebody was following not uh, the subsequent uh, lineages or subsequent variants that I am a and those, those forms of Buddhism, but the original Buddhism, was there any such original Buddhist, say 100 years back, anywhere in the world? Mm, well, at least the notion of Buddhism was there. Yeah, I'm, sorry, so... I'm saying I'm getting up in the morning and somebody asked me, right, say in 1750 or 1850, and say, yeah. what's your religious uh, identity? Then I say, I am a Buddhist. Would there be anybody like that? Or everybody was a particular, you know, Tibetan Buddhism or, uh, you know, whatever forms that it has become. I, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, How well, that's, that's the same, very lazy that's the same situation with, with Hinduism as such. I mean, at a time when Hinduism was a whole society, you didn't have to constantly um, take into account the presence of Muslims, Christians, and so on you would first of all say that you are a Shaiva or, you know, whichever sect you belong to. 
as well as you know in, in identity terms we would also say that i am a brahmin i am a child i am you know by caste um so you know where buddhism is the norm people would emphasize their particular brand of buddhism whereas uh, where buddhism was one of the sects among others people were quite conscious of being buddhist and because their neighbors who were not buddhists reminded them of it all the time they usually did not know all the subdivisions so you know they called you a buddhist so you were quite conscious of the identity of buddhists I see. but um yeah but you see as with hinduism here also a role was played by western scholars so in the mid 19th century when they discovered buddhism uh they well first of all at first they didn't know the buddha they saw buddhism i mean travelers who went to china and so on they they reported about the buddha about seeing buddha statues at first they didn't even know that he was from india uh, so they thought the buddha was chinese and so as they discovered buddhism they projected a development that was going on in the west at the same time uh, critical bible scholarship developed and um, uh, a number of intellectuals by no means all of them but enough to be known to all the others uh, developed the idea that uh, well christian history was not so nice but especially it was based on a number of uh, factual falsehoods like the story of uh, Christians being martyrs in uh, the Roman Empire, for example. And um, so in that context, you see, they took a critical look at all the new religions they discovered. And so one thing they particularly liked about Buddhism, and that's not the Buddhism of this Thai temple that I described, but the Buddhism from scripture, was that the Buddha was just like the modern enlightenment intellectuals, wary of tradition, wary of beliefs, and emphasizing that you should examine things for yourself. So that they really liked. And then you see the Christian scholars projected onto the Buddha uh, an important division known in the history of Christianity, namely, the um, the figure of a rebel against tradition, like Jesus himself was against the Pharisees. Then Luther, the founder of Protestantism, was against popery. And so that theme of Luther against popish uh, priestcraft, that was projected onto the Buddha versus Brahmin priestcraft. And so they greatly emphasized the um, existing cleavages within the Western uh, religious landscape. And so they overemphasized the rationality of Buddhism, whereas in reality, Indians will know, for example, that um, there are miracle stories pertaining to the Buddha some of them, in fact, reproduced in the gospel. 
Um, in Tibet, there is even an annual festival about the Buddha's miracles. So it's not all rational, uh, but nevertheless sufficiently so to convince the scholars of this, uh, this cleavage. And so now that has, that has been popularized, all the introductory books about Buddhism put it that way. Yeah. They, they, they present the Buddha as an anti-Vedic rebel. Yeah, they're creating a completely new, I, I think uh, 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 white Buddhism is a good, uh, good phrase to call it, Western Buddhism mm -hmm. or white, white Buddhism because <laughs> they're creating their own God. Yeah. Uh, Buddha who never was. But uh, yeah, I think we're running out of time. Uh, uh, I think we just uh, finished our uh, assigned uh, 40 minutes. So it's been uh, great chatting with you. And uh, yes, uh, like I was talking about Shang Redemption, I think they'll be a, celebrating your life uh, uh, at the age of 80 uh, would be a Hindu redemption. Uh, uh, you know, so we 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 we, <laughs> we we will redeem ourselves for all the work that you've done for us, uh, and we are you know express our gratitude. Uh, uh, I, I don't think so. We are doing that enough, but uh, thank you once again for all that you do for us. Uh, it's it's um, uh, it's really it's really overwhelming, and 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 I know personally the kind of struggles you've gone through, and. Uh, uh, I, 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 I hope Achyadin will come. <laughs> I'm not sure about what's happening outside, but in our lives, at least, uh, in your life, at least, Achyadin will come. So thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Lovely chatting with you. Srinivas, thank you very much, Srinivas, for giving this. Yeah. Thank you very much, Harikiran Garu. You started off your interview with the bank, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, Conrad handle it with his usual bluntness <laughs> and honesty, which we love him uh, for. <laughs> uh, so that was a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, startup uh, session. We're all warmed up now.